Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy, and after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. While you're listening today, please take a quick second and go over to Apple Podcasts to give us a quick rate and review. Your support and feedback goes a really long way in making this resource more visible to others who work in first response and frontline work. We really appreciate it. Today, we're kicking off a short series spotlighting a few amazing helping professionals who have taken their experience and learning as frontline helpers and sought to go above and beyond in bridging gaps, offering supports, and calling out broken systems. Today, I am honored to be joined by Nathan Kapler, a retired law enforcement officer and the host of the 1033 podcast, where he tackles issues around PTSD and mental health facing law enforcement. We talk about systemic challenges, the impacts of the real lives of amazing helpers, and how we can work together to tackle these challenges from the inside out. Let's dive in. Welcome, Nathan. I'm so glad to have you here with me. Um, I know we have been kind of waiting to do this for a while. I think we've had this on the books for like a month or two. (laughs) So I'm so glad we're able to coordinate a time to connect. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to pop over and share the love over here. Yeah, fair enough. Well, why don't we start um, just by having you share a little bit about yourself and your background as a first responder um, and some of the work that you're up to. Yeah, so it's easier if I paint a picture as to where I'm at in life right now because I wear many, many hats now in retirement. Uh, I'm a father of three, married. We live in Langley, B.C., uh, I've got a few different business hats on. I won't dive into that too, too much. Um, retirement has been awesome because it's caused me to kind of grow in certain areas. And I, I absolutely love the different things that I'm able to do now uh, outside of what I did before for 14 years. So for 14 years prior to 2021 was when I retired. Uh, I was with the Mounties. The RCMP mm-hmm. for 14 years, and I did uh, a number of different things with them. Uh, I did the general duty thing. I was a drug investigator uh, at a provincial level, and then I moved up to the federal level policing and did even more up there, and and had fantastic experiences. But over time, uh, the one thing that I didn't think that was going to get impacted, which was my health or my mental health, uh, very much did. And post-traumatic stress very much became a part of my journey uh, with first responder work. And we'll get into more of the nitty-gritty as to where that goes, but that's kind of who I am right now. So I'm on a, I would say I'm on a path of healing uh, and recovery. Uh, and also a part of that journey too is, uh, I do have my own podcast and do very similar work to you where we kind of bang that drum together as a community and we let first responders know that, you know, some of the mental health things that they're going to encounter, I don't even say may, um, yeah. I say they will encounter is very normal. And we need to start having better conversations around how do we stay well? How do we recognize what it is that we're going through so that we can address it? Uh, Sometimes we feel like we're in the fog and we don't know how to get out. So very, very crucial kind of things going on there in my life too. And that really helps me kind of stay connected with community. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the things that I feared about, you know, being judged or, 
you know, being viewed in such a way about stepping forward as a Mountie and talking about my mental health, I've actually found that I've had better connection now with Mounties and first responders Mm -hmm. because I am talking about this and it's allowing others to feel safe and say, hey, I also am going through this and I haven't found anyone yet that can openly talk about this. So I'd love to talk to you. And you start to see other people start to flourish again and grow and deal with their stuff. Yeah. And remove some of that shame and guilt. So that's a little bit about me. I mean, I think there's this really interesting piece about the Mounties in particular. Um, Like a different degree of keep it quiet within that culture. Um, And especially for those that are still working actively, there is this like loyalty to the system that feels like it's required in order to stay okay in the system. And I'm so curious um, how, how that is for you, like how you've noticed that in your own experience of retiring and maybe feeling a different uh, permission or freedom to share about how that experience was for you versus when you were in it, but also how that is as you connect with others who are potentially still in it. Do you find that that's harder to have some of those conversations without some of those barriers that say I still have to be like, guarded or protective of this because I am still active? Yeah, I really do. And I think I think if we look at uh, the two different types of people that are out there that are going through maybe their trauma and they're starting to try and deal with it, it's really hard for active members to step forward and say, this is what I'm going through. I'm going yeah. through addiction. I'm going through alcohol abuse or drug addiction. Uh, I'm going through other forms of addiction or, you know, I'm having those sleepless nights and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. scared. I'm really scared to fall asleep because of the nightmares. And I'm having these mental health issues and these personal interpersonal relationship issues and behavioral issues and all of these things that are happening. And it all comes from, you know, shame and guilt and, and whatnot. And why is it there? I, I, I kind of think from my own perspective, as I reflect back to my own journey with the Mounties is I think this is fostered from the beginning in the recruiting Mm. process. They look for people that, um, you know, they're going to be told to, to do extraordinary things regularly. And there's so many things that happen in the application process too. Like for many of us, as we reflect back to what that looks like, I can remember not hearing anything for years. And then all of a sudden they'd reach out to you and say, Hey, we need, you know, this multitude of information. You have two days to get it. Right. Right. And it was this constant creation of chaos and unrealistic deadlines, but they want to see, you know, who can do what they're told. And yeah. become someone that they want. Yeah. That perfect employee. So now you're taking people who have this desire and they have this prestige of what does the Mounties look like? And they're now becoming that person and they're almost abandoning themselves to a degree to become that person. And it mm-hmm. starts really early on. Hmm. So now all of a sudden you have this individual who is going to literally self-sacrifice every step of the way and also be deathly afraid to speak out against the organization. Yeah. And speak out about their own needs, their own right. boundaries, their own mental health, their own health, the toll of the job. And now you throw in all the different issues as far as a first responder goes where you know the funding isn't the best. We're working on our own And we're fostering this environment where we're kind of put into this, okay, you need to be this big, strong Mountie and, you know, conquer the unfathomable repeatedly over and over and over. And we don't have the supports and the resources in place to help you navigate that journey, but we're going to keep throwing you into the fire and expect that you can handle it. And again, I don't approach this with cynicism or pessimism or a negative connotation here. I'm not complaining. I'm just painting that there is a very realistic kind of issue that that kind of the RCMP members face yeah and it's specific to them so I totally get why people who are active duty can't speak out I've interviewed Mm -hmm. many people who you know going from lower ranks of the RCMP all the way up to white shirts all say the same thing there's not a culture of safety within the RCMP that promotes people to step forward and say hey I'm breaking or I'm broken you know where do I turn for help who who can I trust who can I speak to and that is where I think and you or I connected a little bit about this earlier 
is if that doesn't exist, yeah. then we're going to create an environment on the outside to let others know that they are supported and that this is all very, very normal. So I think when I, was, when I became a police officer in 2007, there was very little conversation around this. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a lot more now. Yeah. So I, I hope that that growth is pushing us in the right direction. That we kind of perpetuate that. I mean, I'm so curious. So like, give me the backstory to the backstory. What made you choose law enforcement to begin with? And I'm so, this is always the question I'm curious about. What were the expectations going in? And then what do you think about now? Like through this process and kind of in hindsight, about those expectations as it relates to what your actual experience has been? So I love when you ask people this question, because you'll get, you'll always get one answer. And that answer Mm -hmm. is always, and this is true for myself, I wanted to get into something that I could be passionate about, where I could help people, and I could be a voice for others that are, you know, suffering and struggling and kind of make the world a better place. Yeah. And I think we all share that that common theme where you ask that question, someone who's gone through, you know, immense amounts of therapy and really kind of found healing, you know, they can go a little bit deeper. So for me, and this is where I'm going with this train of thought, you know, my childhood had specific experiences where I felt very powerless and I didn't have a voice. And there were certain things, certain traumatic events that really created kind of a lot of pain and suffering. And I didn't know how to get that out as a child. I didn't have the right support there. So it's kind of ironic that later on in life, I would go and pursue becoming this, you know, this this yeah. image of a prof- person that's in a profession that's that's very strong and courageous and mm-hmm. and has a voice and he's respected and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So even though in, in the back burner when I was growing up, I said, hey, I want to do these amazing things with my life, which was very much true. And I had a big mm-hmm. heart and I, I cared for people. Uh, there's also kind of that subconscious story too behind that. Uh, I think for many of us that we really have to look at what did our childhood look like? And why did we really subconsciously choose policing? Uh, and I think that's when a lot of healing can really start to happen is when we peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak. Uh, so that was kind of why I chose policing. And I won't get into the nitty gritty of what happened to me, but I think we all kind of share the same story, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, you're right. I think that piece about like, I want to help people. I want to make the world a better place. is pretty consistent, especially in law enforcement. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, having a voice and being respected and being able to speak up for others, you know, also highlights this deeper thought of, you know, if you're so passionate about that, where do you lack that in your own life? And I did lack that in my own life. So that subconsciously drove me to wanting to do that with my life. Um, And there's, there's nothing bad with this conversation in the sense that, you know, the route I, I chose to go was still, uh, I loved it absolutely loved it. I fall apart later on, but these are also some incredible lessons in life that help you rebuild and grow into a new person, a new version of yourself that's much more aligned with who you are and where you actually need to be. Some people never get that lesson, which is also a shame. So I'm very fortunate to have, you know, had a very uh, successful career with the Mounties and had gone through a lot and kind of found myself on the other end of it and able to still come back and lead a healthy life and give back. Now, and this is something that's very true. You touched on this is this almost delusional thought of, you know, painting a reality before you walk into what you get as a Mountie. Yeah. And I think those two worlds are very different, very, very different. And I know they were for me, what I thought I was going to be doing as a police officer compared to what I did actually end up doing. And just the, the complete, if we sever those two pathways, this thought of, you know, what is the positive change that I can affect if I'm looking at becoming a police officer to the reality of the positive change that I could actually impact others with in that role were two totally different yeah. things as well. So yeah. that's something that I know a lot of times, like when people come to me and say, I want to get into policing, I usually try to sit them down and just say, hey, let's 
figure out your your vision here and make sure it is aligned with what's actually going to take place because i think that is a healthier approach than the way i approached what my career was going to look like but again i didn't have mm-hmm. those tools or that ability to connect with people yeah. at the time that could help me that way behind the line is sponsored by beating the breaking point Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, This program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot. Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Hmm. I love that reflection because I do think that And I don't think this is unique to policing, but for sure it does show up in policing. I think the parts of the job that were sold, um, whether that's like exposure in media or um, exposure in our actual lives, looks this very given way and creates these very given expectations. And then what it really looks like to be on the inside of feels so different. And one of the arguments I've made for a really long time, I need need to do a study on this, um, is that the parts of the job that you knew you were signing up for, while hard and for sure um, exposing to trauma and trauma-related incidents, tend not to be the stuff that actually undoes people. It's actually far more, I think, Uh, the systems that they're embedded in and the stuff that you didn't know you were signing up for. It's like the bureaucratic BS and the power tripping dynamics and right. Like it's, it's all of these like very nuanced things that are embedded in so many layers upon layers upon layers within the system. And, and you can know that like, you know, there's like hazing that happens or, you know, like you can know that there's like some of these pieces in the system but I, I don't think that we advertise how deep it goes and how intrusive it is um, and how unavoidable that is. Um, I think people just think like, oh, if I just like keep my head down and do a good job at the policing part of policing, I'll be right. Like, but it that's not actually accurate. Um, and I think that that's actually the stuff that tends to be the more undoing parts of the job. Um, we signed up knowing I was signing up for, right, hard calls and, you know, these different possibilities of scenarios, but we didn't know we were signing up for some of the really deeply embedded pieces in the background. And to build on that, like, I think even from my own perspective, I think that going into this role of serving my country and, you know, putting my life on the line day after day after day and not knowing if I was going to come home or not, I kind of thought, you know what, I bet you if if this is the way it's going to go for me, I'm going to serve my country with this amazing organization that I'm so proud to look up to. They're going to have my back and they're going to be there to support me along the way and make sure I stay strong and healthy and all these different things. But it really isn't that. It's more of a give and take relationship where the Mounties will take as much as you can give and they Mm -hmm. can only give back so much. Now I'm not throwing stones at the glass house saying, you know, boo on you, but there is a lot of change that's required to really kind of dive into, you know, how do we support our men and women better so that they can go out and run this marathon? It's not a sprint, Mm -hmm. but we still send people out of depot in this full sprint mode. And we say, go, 
Yeah. We've got to slow that down and we've got to do a better job of being there to support them along the way because it's destroying them and it's destroying families and it's destroying children along the way. And it, it, overall, it's degrading the the uh, the impact that a police officer may be able to have on the, the public, right, while they're doing mm-hmm. their job. Are they well, right? And yeah. as something I've picked up on uh, some time ago just through talking with so many different people is – before I started podcasting, I even thought to a degree too, I was like, oh, you know what? There might be a bit of a, an issue within law enforcement. We have this thought of the mm-hmm. bad apples that might exist. And then I thought to myself, you know what? <laughs> Maybe if it's not that, could it be something different? And I thought, you know what? Most mm-hmm. people that go into this profession genuinely are amazing people. So let's just say for argument's sake that 100% of the people going into policing are compassionate and they're mentally yeah. stable and they're fit and they have this ability to care and be compassionate and to be amazing leaders in the environment and we put them into this career and now all of a sudden why are we seeing all these issues with police brutality and you know officers making uh, not the best decisions while they're working yeah and i thought to myself you know what this seems to be more like a mental health epidemic than anything mm, yeah because these people should be able to make wise decisions while doing their job why are they not able to do that it's because they're unwell yeah and we need to do a better job of that totally hmm it's like this reciprocal kind of piece right like um i talk about this a lot with nursing i don't think it's unique to nurses though um it's like a numbers game right so historically we haven't had to value long-standing, highly experienced professionals in some of these professions because it's cheaper to just get new ones in. And within the system, right, the, the cog that any one of us might be within that system, there is some amount of disposability um, and replaceability. And, and I find that really disappointing, actually. Like, as, as a member of the public, as a consumer of services, it makes me very fearful and worried about things like having to take my child to the hospital for a procedure because I don't actually feel confident that we have the best, most skilled, experienced people there at all times because I know the burnout rates right now and I know that we're burning out the best people um, and that we're burning them out at a rate that is exponentially faster than it's ever been in history. And I know that a lot of those people are there and feel in over their heads. And I know that because they come to my office and tell me about it. Um, And that is scary as a member of the public. Um, And I feel that way similarly about policing. I feel similarly that way about paramedics. Like I, I am watching it unfold in my office and then I go home thinking, God help us, no one break an arm today, please. Because I don't I don't feel confident <laughs> in what happens after that because I just talked to three people who I think are amazing that are leaving and I just talked to three people who are brand new to it who are so in over their heads and identifying like I put on the brave face, but I'm so in over my head. And now I think we're at a place which is super interesting and I'm terrified but intrigued to see what happens next where we have this new generation of people who care differently about work-life balance than we've ever had in history. Um, And they're not choosing to go into some of these professions because they are more aware of how they're treated and not willing to tolerate it the same way that previous generations were. And I'm super fascinated by what's going to happen because I don't think the numbers game is going to work for much longer. I don't think this thing that hospitals and, you know, law enforcement agencies and stuff have capitalized on where they kind of go like, ah, yeah, I mean, who, who needs you though? Cause we've got a whole new cohort coming in. Um, I don't know that that, that the statistics on that are going to keep up for much longer. And I'm, I'm really actually genuinely concerned about what happens then for public service as a member of the public who needs that service sometimes. 
A hundred percent agree uh, as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back one notch here and then come back to yeah. this train of thought. But you touched on something too earlier that I wanted to really kind of highlight as an important part of the journey of trauma and first responder work, military, and even just civilians yeah. that go through trauma. Uh, I think for for a large part of the population, including myself, we're very capable at handling a traumatic event. We have those yeah. systems in place where the body will call up fight or flight. It'll, you know, dump out the adrenaline. It'll get the body ready to do a response in order to stay well. And I, I loved how you put this. You talked about how you actually don't know if it's necessarily the trauma that's causing a lot of the bulk issues. It's mm-hmm. actually how we process everything afterwards. And through podcasting, I learned about these different terms that I didn't really know of when I was actually a police officer. So I want to share them. And they were sanctuary trauma and moral injuries. And they're kind of these pegs in the wheel that we really need to start talking about as well. And the sanctuary trauma, just to dive into a little bit of an education session, because we may as well, some people may not know what it is, but it's, it's, that post-traumatic event when we go to someone looking for support and we don't get the support that we need. And that actually seems to be more damaging than the traumatic event itself, which is actually kind of interesting because now we start to see a little bit about, okay, what's happening that's causing that to, to fizzle out and we don't heal from whatever the event was. And it's this connection piece, this connection piece that we need from other humans when we go to them and we're trying to be vulnerable and we're saying, hey, we need to connect with you in this moment. We don't know how to process some of the stuff that we just went through. Can I talk to you? Can I feel this with you? Can we both feel this so that we can do this together and I can heal? That's completely absent in policing. Yeah. Completely absent. Now, if you stack in another layer of complexity to this, the moral injury aspect of things, we all have a moral compass. Mm -hmm. And in first responder work, you will go to one call where you have to bend your moral compass in order to get the job done. Now, if you stack a traumatic experience on top of a sanctuary trauma with a moral injury in place of this whole event that's happened, that is Mm -hmm. somewhere where most people have never been. And you don't know how to come out of that place. Mm -hmm. And you need specific help in relation to that from a professional in order to come back. Now you stack a Mountie or a first responder or someone else, you may go through hundreds of these in your career. Totally. And you are lost. Well, and I think I would add to that because you're right. And I love that you're naming those terms. Um, I would add to that, that there's also this form of trauma that not a lot of people talk about and it's organizational or institutional trauma. Right. And so I think it, it kind of meets with that sanctuary trauma piece because that's who we're going to saying, help please. Um, but organizational trauma is really this piece about, I am entrusting this system to have my best interest at heart. And not only does it not always, but it's actually sometimes the aggressor, right? So like, I remember one of the stories that has stuck with me for a really long time was someone I spoke to who was in corrections and they had an incident and they responded to it in all of the correct, right policy procedural ways, but there was a death and now there's an investigation. And during that investigation, this person is put off on unpaid leave and is treated as though they are a problem. So they have participated in this traumatic event. They experience the trauma of that event and the emotions that attach to that event. And then they're cast away, not just like, no, you just take a break and you do you for a little bit while we figure this out. But like, we're also going to not pay you. So you're now in financial distress. We're going to treat you like you're a hostile as opposed to an asset where we just have to be curious about how that played out. Like we're going to actually be aggressive and adversarial towards you as opposed to even neutral. (laughs) Neutral would have been better. Right. And so it's, it's these levels of like, there's, there's the supportive, not supportive question less than that. There's the neutral, not neutral question. And then even harder than that is this, are we actually adversarial with the system within which we're embedded? 
Well, and how are we painting uh, the realities of what someone is going through in a vulnerable state? You take a first responder who's just gone through something significant, say a use of force that may yeah. actually include uh, using your firearm, and we send them off and we say, hey, we can't, we can't actually be connected with you anymore. So you're striking their support out of the equation. You're striking their connection. Uh, you're, you're removing anything that may actually be there. And these are the things that they need in order to process kind of what they've gone through. These are their family members. This is their identity. And you, you put them in this position where they now sit at home and they stew about, did I do the right thing? Yeah. And they are in such a vulnerable state that they will convince themselves that they did the wrong thing. Yeah. And now all of a sudden their experience and their memory is starting to shift and they're yeah. starting to doubt themselves and weave a much different story compared to, you know, the, the capable, confident cop that was there dealing with a high stress incident has now yeah. all of a sudden catered and said, oh my God, I did something wrong. When in reality they hadn't. They had done their training exactly the way they had done. So these these stories, these pieces are so significant. Uh, and I'm glad you're here having these conversations because they need to be had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I guess, and like circling us then to the, the next piece in this is likewise, I'm grateful for the work you're doing. Like, um, it's funny, I was talking to someone and I was saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm having this person on my podcast and they have a podcast. And I just had this other person on my podcast recently and their husband has a podcast um, in connected related topics. And they were like, well, that seems like a bad idea. Like that's like a bad business move to have other people that are, they're like your competitors. Like, well, A, I don't get paid for this, but B, uh, <laughs> B, like, how about we stop being like this consumeristic, like lacking kind of mentality, scarcity mentality. How about anyone who can help? <laughs> Just help. Like, how about, because I think there is a lot of need. And I think it's actually really important that we have a multitude of voices speaking to that need from various perspectives. Like, just like there's no one counselor who's going to be the right fit for every client. There's not ever going to be one voice that satisfies the sense of need for every person who's experiencing some of these challenges. So I would love to hear about, for you, that transition from retiring to choosing to take on this podcast and like what the heart of that is for you, what your hopes are around it um, and what it looks like to kind of be a support person from the position you're in now. Yeah, great question. I, and I'm a full transparency kind of guy now, especially having had gone through everything I had gone through. So I'm going to dive into a bit of my story, which will blend into the answer that I'm going to give here. Uh, sure. Through my journey with PTSD, I was absolutely derailed by horrible depression and anxiety. Uh, every symptom known, you know, in the DSM uh, for PTSD, I went through it. Where my journey then went was through harassment and bullying within the RCMP, which is also very common, uh, was not supported in that time. Uh, and the, the issues that come from that place is this debilitating uh, anxiety attacks. I started to get these anxiety attacks where I was starting to vomit every day and I didn't understand what was going on. And this actually spelled not just from like a harassment and bullying in the workplace, but an incident where one of my supervisors who was uh, facing alcohol addiction himself and significant mm -hmm. PTSD and unaware charged me in a hallway. And I actually thought we were going to get into a fight. So now okay. all of a sudden I don't feel safe at work, yeah. right? It, which was very bizarre as a police officer to yeah. go through that experience. That's where the anxiety mm -hmm. attacks start to come in. Every time I'm going into work, I'm thinking who the hell is going to charge me and want to fight me at work now, right? Don't feel yeah. safe. So I end up going through such significant pain and suffering that I no longer can cope with what I'm going through. Suicidal ideation was a part of my journey. Addiction became a part of my journey as I'm looking for some kind of solution to deal with this pain and suffering. I have no shame and guilt to talk about this because it all makes sense. If you go through this yeah. significant amount of pain and suffering, you will seek out a solution. That is human nature. I accept sure. it, fully accept it. So yeah. the beauty in the story is I eventually get to a point where I recognize that I need help. 
Mm-hmm. And I am so stubborn that I have never asked for help in my entire life. And I have to put my hand up for help in order to go to rehab to get me back on track and to figure out what has happened to me. Yeah. To put it all into place and process, you know, years of trauma. And I did just that. So in 2019, I went to rehab and I had this phenomenal experience and where this, this seed of uh, this seed that gets planted for Nate being, you know, getting into sobriety and recovery and podcasting is planted there. I sat down with my therapist and I was so closed off by that point. I wasn't sharing anything. I had so much armor on that. I didn't even know how to communicate or connect with anyone else, let alone myself. Yeah. He sat down and said, Nate, this was after weeks of trying to get me to open up. He said, Nate, the only time that you're going to be able to truly heal from this is when you can develop the ability to tell your story. Hmm. Yeah. And I didn't know what that meant in the moment, but I knew it meant something profound. So I started to slowly open up at rehab and allow feelings to come back in and express myself and talk about emotions and equally as hard as a Mountie is having to take those steps when you haven't done that for years, it can be very, very complex. When I had come out of rehab in 2019, we get hit with social isolation again in COVID. I actually ended up relapsing and not, not surprised by that at all. Mm -hmm. Social isolation for us is not good. We lose our support systems and things go sideways. So I end up starting to go back down the path into addiction. And I recognized in that moment that I've got one Hail Mary here to keep everything intact. And that was, how do I do this? What do I need to do in order to get myself back on track? And I remember that message, that message of, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to get out and tell your story. And I knew, I knew enough about trauma now at this point to know that social isolation wasn't a good thing and that I needed people in my life in order to stay well because I was pushing them away, right? Because of the trust issues and everything that comes with that space. So I actually started talking on TikTok at the time because that was the Mm. most comfortable thing for me where I didn't know anybody on TikTok. So I could come out and tell my story and it was okay. It wasn't the inner circle. And eventually over time, people were showing up and I was getting, you know, different uh, pieces of feedback and this is great. And, you know, can, Mm. can you interview someone because we all kind of go through this oddly enough. And so I started to have people on TikTok, but you can't actually record those videos. And so I eventually over about a year of getting used to talking, I eventually said, there's a need here. There's a very legitimate need here. And I know the day where I finally said, I'm going to finally get out into the world and start telling my story. And I'm going to start advocating for myself and believing in myself and remove all of this shame and this guilt and this this horrible emotion that comes with PTSD was the day I decided to, to podcast. And kind of the, the last thing that nudged me on that path was that was the day when two police officers had taken their lives. And mm-hmm. in the news, everyone said, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Yeah. This shouldn't have happened. You know, blah, 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 blah. They, you know, the normal, typical news stories. And I right. just looked at this and I was just like, I know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've got to do a better job of getting that why out there and talking yeah. about this and yeah. making people feel okay so that they can step forward and they don't have to take their own lives. Mm-hmm. And that's how the podcast was born. Hmm. It's amazing the things that are born out of need, right? And it's so 1033. Yeah, in 1033, I chose this name because that's our call sign for help. When we're officer down, things are going sideways, we need help. But what's interesting is we we can get very good on duty asking for help when we're in a serious threat that we don't know how to respond to because we've undergone the training. But yet when we go home, how do we ask for mental health help? We don't know how to ask. And that's where, that's where the name came from. 1033. Well, I love it. And I think it's so funny. It's not the right word, but, um, but that's what I'm going to use. It's so funny because I think that's exactly why this podcast started too, was this piece of like, I listen to so many people from various first response, frontline work professions, talk about the degree of training that they have for the thing that they do. And the shock that they have about the fact that they weren't trained 
to analyze their own okayness. So, right, like I remember having a client share with me, you know, there's this poster on the wall at my work and it's got this like picture and it's almost like a, we need you, except it's like, watch out for PTSD. And that's all it says. (laughs) That's it. Watch out for PTSD. And it's so interesting because it's like, if you went to a new place and they said, watch out for, and then named an animal, right? Watch out for bears. If you didn't know what a bear looked like, if you didn't know what a bear was, you wouldn't know how to watch out for it. And you would see this cute, cuddly thing walk over and you would want to pet it and it would eat you, right? Like, why do we not train people who are very likely to engage with bears, what a bear looks like. Why are we not training people (laughs) to like how to handle a bear when you know what a bear looks like so that you're not eaten by this? And it's the same with PTSD. It's the same with compassion fatigue. It's the same with burnout. Why are we not training people to know what to look for so that we're catching it when it's still way down there and I can see it coming instead of when it's like smacking me upside the head and beating me senseless. Why aren't we doing that differently? And that's, I think, the thing that started the podcast for me was like, I'm so tired of having this conversation. This shouldn't be new information and it's not rocket science. Yeah. No, this is not rocket science at all. This is, this is human behavior. This is classic human behavior in response to significant abnormal events that are going to cause you to do things that for you actually feel normal in the moment because the body is responding this way, but it's completely abnormal. And one of the things too, I love how you said this is we, we don't do a good job of arming our people with the proper knowledge and not just the knowledge, but how does this look like? What is this going to look like for you? What is this going to feel like? How do you become your own doctor along this way? Because I can tell you now at this stage of the journey of my PTSD growth and recovery, I can check in with the body. Now I have that ability and I can tell you exactly where my stress is. I can tell you why that's there. I can tell you what I need to do next in order to get that, you know, dealt with so it doesn't accumulate. Uh, And even the shifting, just the perspective of where does this stuff exist? It actually doesn't exist in the head. It exists in the body, right? Mm -hmm. We're not telling our men and women that, hey, you know, the reason why your stomach has been hurting for the last two years and you've had, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or you've had different pains and ailments in the body, that's stress. Mm -hmm. And if you live with that long enough, it's going to impact your mental health. Yeah. So we've got to get better at treating the body better. The mind too, yes. But, you know, and shifting the dialogue of what does this look like? I know when I sit down with people and they're like, oh yeah, mental health, that's all in your head. I'm like, no, it's not. It's mind-body connection. Here's why, you know, here's the story. And they go, oh, never really thought about it that way. Well, and it's like not even just this story in a moment. It's the story told over time, right? So like one of my favorite books of all time is Gabor Mate's When the Body Says No. And I love it because it describes that. It, you know, it talks about this idea of how our exposure to things is embedded into our body and how our body experiences. And our body is the conduit through which we do life, right? Like I see through my body, I hear through my body, I feel through my body. It is the mechanism by which we encounter situations and people and experiences. It's also the mechanism by which we make sense of the story of who my body was in that moment and how it responded to things and what that means about me. Um, They're inextricable, right? Like they are intertwined. You cannot piece them apart. There is no one or the other. They are inherently combined. And in his book, he talks about this idea of that over the course of time. So when we are heavily exposed to trauma or stress or adverse experiences from childhood, over the course of time, it is more likely that we will have health-related concerns that are directly related to the degree of stress we experienced over the course of time. Um, And he makes arguments for certain kinds of cancers, for multiple sclerosis, for all kinds of autoimmune conditions, for tons of digestive concerns, right? All of these have these like 
really interesting, you know, if, if you talk to a doctor about fibromyalgia, they're like, we just don't really know where fibromyalgia comes from. But if you track a consistent factor of fibromyalgia, it's almost always trauma. There's almost always early childhood experiences of stress and trauma. And it's been embedded in the body and held there for a really, really long time. And it's had to hold intense and protect. And it does that for so long that my body has literally developed muscle tension issues and all of these autoimmune pieces that interconnect and create symptoms like fibromyalgia. Right. And so it's so fascinating because it is all interconnected. And I love Nate, that you brought up this piece about like that my upbringing influenced my decision to go into policing, but also probably has impacts in the outcomes of my policing, right? That like there are ways in which we tend to think it's just the job and the job's a huge part of it. And it can be just the job, but a lot of times there's a reason we got into the job and there's woundings and hurts that led us to make choices that led us to the job. And those are often echoed in a lot of our traumatic experiences that we have within the job. And so it is this like mind, body, and over time projected thing that I don't think we fully account for. No, and we can't uh, because we're, we're, ha- <laughs> we're still quite young in this journey of civilization and experiences, and we still don't under- understand a lot about the, the mind-body connection. Yeah. Uh, there's, some, there's some amazing individuals out there that are doing some amazing work. Dr. Gabor Mate is one of them, and the, the, the story that he's trying to paint uh, is going against the grain right now because we're starting to actually shift our perspective on disease. And I mean, if you break the word down, disease is a state of not being at ease. Yeah. You're not calm. Yeah. The body is not in a place where it can feel like it's safe. We all know that feeling from childhood. Yeah. Right? And if we live with that long enough, what does that chemical makeup look like inside the body? And what is that doing to promote this more unhealthy version of yourself that's going to allow disease to come in, your cancers, uh, diabetes, you know, and this gets into nutrition too as well at the same yeah. time. So we've got to be careful. But I wholeheartedly agree with you that we've got to really slow down and focus more on the body and make sure that it feels safe. It's in a state of relaxation because we just need to get out of the way. When we do that, we promote the body being well. It takes care of itself. It heals itself. It does what it needs to do when we give it the proper nutrition and food and remove the stress. And, you know, we do all the things that we need to do. It's so simple. We don't have to do anything. So simple. Just the hard work. (laughs) Right. Totally agree with you. And I love that you brought this up too. And this is where I think for many first responders, you get stuck in this marathon race and you forget all of these lessons and you just get stuck in this let's charge forward. But at the same time, you've got to slow down and you got to pay attention to what you're doing on your days off or even at duty. Check in with the body and really focus on, okay, where am I holding that muscle tension right now? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing when you actually stop for a moment and let your shoulders go limp and just start to feel the body. You can see where that tension is. You let that go and all of a sudden you feel good. Yeah. That feels nice. You're breathing differently. You're actually taking deep breaths. Mm. So important stuff for us to do because we forget how to do it. So important. True story. I'm curious, Nate, as we wrap up, because I feel like we've done some solid work and people are going to be exhausted after listening to this. They'll be like, I got work to do, man. Um is there anything else that you would want people to know about, about what you're doing or ways that we can kind of point to resources that, that you value and including your podcast, um, but any other resources that feel important to share? You know, I think, I think one of the biggest things that I can point to is your mindset <clears throat> and really tune into what the mind is telling you in every single moment of your life. I, I don't know. I've, I'll quote this real quick. Let's say we have 40 to 60,000 thoughts throughout the day. Mm-hmm. A lot of them tend to be very negative. We tend to be very hard on ourselves. And if you're going through something that's very difficult, whether it's depression, anxiety, addiction, mental health, mm-hmm. you know, stress, all of these different things, you're going to be even harder on yourself. 
And there is this amazing, loving community that is here that is trustworthy and safe. That's you. That's me. That's so many people that are stepping forward and saying, yes, this stuff is real. (laughs) Connect with us. We want to be here so you can hear our story and you can hear others' stories because you don't have to continue to live this way. Yeah. And that is the beauty of this passion project. Even though your friends said, hey, you guys are all competing, we're really not. This is not a competition. There is a big enough piece of cake here, trust me. And it doesn't involve money. It involves feel-good. It involves like inspiring people to move beyond what they've been through so that they can realize that they don't have to stay a prisoner in this experience. And I felt that way before. And I'm sure you have too, where you've felt like you were lost and you can't get out and you need that help. And it takes someone who's been through something incredibly difficult and who's willing to reach back for the right reasons and give you a hand and pull you out of that trench. But we're here. Yeah. So tune in with yourself and give yourself that self-love, that compassion that you deserve, because there's a reason why you're here and you're not feeling good and accept Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And look for help. It's there. And you can get out. No problem. I mean, we're both right here. I love it. Thanks so much, Nate. I am so grateful that there are other people out there doing this work. I am so grateful for your experience. Like as much as I would never wish upon you the experience that you had to bring you here, I'm also so grateful that given that it happened, that you're using it in the way that you are because I do agree that people really need to know that their story isn't in isolation. And I think that when we hear echoes of ourselves, we feel like we're not so alone in it. So I'm so grateful for the work you're doing and how you're making that available. Thank you. And yes, gratitude is a beautiful thing too, that I hold gratitude for falling into, you know, the trenches of everything I just talked about because it taught me so many beautiful things And it also led me to a place where I had a choice. Mm -hmm. I could stay or I could grow. So thank you for having me here today. Uh, It's been an honor. Such a pleasure. Thanks for being here. I want to extend one more really big thank you to Nathan for making the time to join me today. As we wrap up, let me remind you that if you value this podcast and want to help us in our mission to support frontline wellness, there are three amazing ways that you can help us do that. The first one is to use the power of your ratings and reviews on Behind the Line on Apple Podcast or wherever else you might be listening. The second way is that you can follow me on social media at Lindsay A. Foss and engage with me in this amazing little community that we're building there. Every time that you like, comment, and share our posts, you help us to spread like wildfire thanks to the magic of the algorithm. And last but not least, share this resource and our other resources with those you know. If you would like a poster or info cards about the podcast for your workplace, send me an email at support at thrive-life.ca. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. We make all of our resources available to you because the work you do matters. But more than that, you as a person matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.